these summer months going through some of the passages on what has been commonly called in the church the one another's. Uh, without duplicates, there are over 45 one another's of the New Testament, and they basically divide themselves into two major categories. The first category are the one another's that define who we are as believers in Christ, and it describes the indicative nature of our relationship to God and what He's done in Christ for us. For instance, if we are told that we are in Christ and that we are one another in Christ, it tells us something that is true about us on a vertical level. And then there's a second major category in the New Testament that tells us not so much about who we are in our vertical relationship with God, but what we are to do in our horizontal relationship with each other. And those are the majority of those one another's in the New Testament. And they tell us our responsibility to reach out to each other in the body of Christ. How we relate to one another. What we are supposed to do in light of our vertical relationship with the Lord. And there are many of those. If you want to hear the other messages that I've been preaching on the one another's, you can go online to our website. And you can listen to those online. We have a podcast and you can, you can hear those messages. Mainly, I've been focusing on our horizontal relationship with one another, mainly because over the last eight months or so, we have joined together with two churches, the former Thousand Oaks Bible Church and Bethany Church on the Hill. And as we've come together, it's been important for us to understand and to begin to live out our relationship with each other. What does it mean? How do we function together? What are we supposed to do? What are the responsibility areas for which we are to be something for one another? And this morning, I want to talk about three more of those, especially as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Three very, very vital one another's of the New Testament. Patience, patience, forbearance, forbearance, and humility. Humility. These are incredibly important horizontal aspects of our relationship to each other. Now, of course, each one of those are patients as God works with us and as He is patient with us. That's an aspect of our vertical relationship with Him, to be sure. The idea of forbearance, that God is forbearing with us, even as His children, that's true also, the vertical dimension. And of course, humility is also very much a part of who we are supposed to be before our Lord. So it's not exclusive that we hold these things in a horizontal dimension with and for and toward each other exclusively and only. They are a part, of course, of our relationship with God, but they are both an aspect 
of the vertical dimension of that relationship with God, but also, and especially, I might say, it is incredibly incumbent upon us that we live out these these horizontal dimensions of life in the body of Christ. And I would say these are particularly important for us. Our patience with one another. Our forbearance with and for and toward one another. And of course, incredibly important is our humility. And what I'd like for us to do this morning as we study these three one another's is that we would also prepare our hearts by evaluating how we are doing in these areas. And as you take the Lord's Supper, and as you meditate upon the bread and the cup, I want you to ask a series of questions about yourself, as I'm asking about myself, how am I doing in these critical areas of patience with others, forbearing with others, and my humility toward others. That's a very, very important study as I meditate and prepare my heart for the receiving of the Lord's Supper. So let's do that together. Let's open our Bibles and study this idea of patience, forbearance, and humility. I want to look first of all at patience. Patience. Now, I'm going to go through a number of passages, and I don't want you to be frustrated with me, all right? Because I'm going to go through a number of them, especially in this very first one, because there are two different concepts that are actually synonymous, and I say two different in the sense that there are two different Greek words that are used to display this idea of our horizontal relationship of patience with and for each other. And there are a number of passages, and I want you to see them. I'm not even going to be sharing with you all the passages that we could find in the New Testament, but I do want you to see several of them, and I think these are the most key ingredients in our patience with one another. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be driving this home to us very practically as we look through these verses simply because these are what we are supposed to do and to be with one another. We are supposed to develop such a unity, such a body dynamic, such a love, such a relationship with each other that you and I find our patience and our forbearance and our humility with one another and for one another just like breathing. Just like breathing. Just as you intake air, and just as you breathe out that air, your patience with others, your forbearance with them, your humility toward them should be as easy and as regular and as systematic as the very breath that you take in and out of your lungs. This is how critical these ideas are, these commands these characteristics for the body of Christ. And I say that, and I'm going to emphasize it again at the end. I say it this way, not just because of our needs for such with and for each other, but also for the sake of a watching world. For a watching world. There may be some of you in our congregation this morning who don't know Jesus Christ. There usually always are those who are here. They're visiting with us. 
They, they are checking us out. Uh, they may be church-going people. Uh, they may be, in fact, believers from other communities. But by and large, they may not be believers themselves. And if they aren't, they need to hear us as Christians talking about each other as Christians and what our relationship should be like with Christians toward one another. They deserve our showing them how we are patient toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They deserve our forbearance with each other so that if they are in fact investigating Christianity, if they are looking us over, if they are trying to find out what Christianity is all about, and of course we know it's about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but it's also shown, it's manifested through our love for one another. That's why Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, that the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that love is characteristically manifested itself, manifesting itself in all of these one another's, including patience, forbearance, and humility. And so they need to see this from us. If they see from us something instead, in fact, something by way of its entire opposite, we're impatient with one another, we are not forbearing with one another, We are not humble toward one another. What commends Christianity to them? I say nothing. Because we are the visible representatives of Jesus Christ on this planet. We are His visible representatives. And if there are unbelievers in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our schools, and even as they visit us and they watch us with each other, and they see our relationship to one another, and if we are not following the very principles of what the New Testament teaches regarding our relationship to each other horizontally in the body of Christ, we might as well pack up the tent and go home. Because they will not see commended to them as a watching individual or individuals the very character of Jesus Christ lived out in His person and through His people. And that's why this is so important. And that's why I'm going to give you as many verses as I can because I want to pile on. I want to pile on. Because this is so important that Paul and Peter, James and John and the Lord Jesus Himself are emphasizing and re-emphasizing and repeating and giving again and again and again the absolute essentiality of what it means to be patient and forbearing and humble with and for and toward one another. All right, you ready? All right, here we go. Patience means to be long-suffering. Patience is just another word for long-suffering. In fact, the very word patient itself or patience itself is the idea of the combining of two Greek words, macro, which means long or large, and thumos, which means passion. Now, sometimes that word thumos in a negative context is referring to anger. And so sometimes you will find translated the idea that someone is long-suffering. In fact, the very passage 
that was read this morning by one of our elders, Joel Tiefel, in Exodus 34. I had him read that because it says that one of the very attributes of God Himself as He describes Himself in the third person. Did you notice that? He came down in the cloud. He stood right next to Moses. Not visibly. He doesn't have a form. But in the manifestation of that cloud. And he says, this is who I am. I, the Lord, the Lord. And one of the things that he says about himself is that he is long-suffering. He is macrothumos. Macrothumia. It's the idea that God has a long span of time in which he is not angry. Long span of time. That's why we say great patience. The idea of long-suffering means that there's there's an endurance on the part of our God for sinners like us. The Bible talks about this repeatedly. This is... This is huge in our Bibles. I quoted for you Exodus 34 and we read it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Paul even says in Romans 2.4 that one of the things that God shows us about Himself to induce us to repent of our sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ is according to Romans 2.4, He says, do you presume... Do you presume on the riches of God's patience? That's a context in which he's chiding, does Paul, the Jews, for their unbelieving ways. Even though they were God's chosen people, according to Romans chapter 2, they were sort of trading on God's grace. They were were playing uh, marbles with diamonds. I mean, God's multifaceted grace was ever and always being shown upon them. They were always seeing the grace of God. Even all of those in the wilderness wanderings of those 40 years, they were seeing the grace of God. He was giving them manna. He was giving them bread. He was giving them quail. He was doing it miraculously. They had no way to to retrieve any of that food on their own. They're in the middle of the wilderness. And he just miraculously shows up and he gives it to them. And what do they do? They complain. They complain about the food. You've never done that at a restaurant, have you? I mean, it's just a part of our very nature that we want something so badly. And yet sometimes when it comes, we don't like it. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul is chiding these, these Jews and he's saying to them, look... Are you presuming on the great patience of God? Do you not understand that God's patience and His kindness is actually in the world? It's manifested to you by God for your repentance? For your turning from your sin? That's what we need to say to unbelievers in our midst. That's what we need to say to those in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our businesses. We need to be able to say, do you not understand that the kindness of God, the very fact that you have breath, the very fact that you have a nice home, the very fact that you have a good job, the very fact that you have a working car, the very fact that you have a blessed family, the very fact that you have health and happiness and home and all the rest that goes with it, do you presume on the great patience of God, the very long-suffering of God, that you can continue to have such breath, that you can continue to have such blessing? 
Don't presume on the grace of God that you will continue to see that grace abound to you in so many ways. Unless you see God as that God of long-suffering, and yet he does say there in, in Exodus 34, but he will by no means clean or clear the guilty. There's going to come a time. So this long-suffering God, he has this long nose of anger. And that, that long nose of anger has its limits. And yet, in that time in between, from that time of judgment, between now and that time of judgment, that long-suffering, that, that anger of God, it will be manifested at some point for those who are spurning His grace For those who are not seeing Him as this gracious, long-suffering God. But now, now that we have breath, now that we have time, now that we have opportunity, we need to see ourselves as Christ's representatives showing other people how we can be long-suffering. How we can be patient with others. You know, Paul, he got that message. He says in 1 Timothy 1.16, these words, But I received mercy for this reason. Now remember, I told you about Romans 2.4, this, uh, this kindness of God, right? This uh, long-suffering of God, and, and that we should not presume upon that long-suffering. This is what Paul says about himself. But I received mercy, this, this long-suffering, merciful God, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, that is the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. He says, I actually arrived on the planet. I was birthed for the very reason in the mercy of God so that Jesus Christ would manifest in my life, Paul's life, the very perfect patience of the perfect character of the perfect Son of God. Now, is that what we think about our lives? That I'm here, I'm on the planet, so that the perfect patience of Jesus Christ could be manifested through my life. You say, well, how would that work itself out practically? Well, first of all, the way it works out practically in that vertical relationship is that I am thanking God every day for the perfect character of the patience of Jesus Christ with a rotten scoundrel like me. Right? I'm thanking God. I'm praising God. And you know, when you are praising God, and when you are thanking God, and when you are continually looking at the mercy of God, you've got your eyes off yourself. And you've got your eyes on the one to whom that perfect patience is zeroing in on you and me so that we are further conformed every day of our lives to the perfect patience of Jesus Christ so that we ourselves indeed are becoming more and more patient. You say, i got to have it more practical than that. All right? All right? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Or excuse me, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we alluded to this Last week, now I want to zero in on the very word, this, this macrothumia of God, this long-suffering God, and what He expects from us as we live out His perfect patience in our lives. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, And we urge you, brothers, this is, this is 
not a classic one another, that all alone, the word one another doesn't appear here, but it's clearly our relationship to each other. We urge you, admonish the idle brothers. See, we're supposed to admonish each other. The word idle, uh, it, it means when someone's out of step, out of cadence, they've gotten off the right track. Well, what do we do with them? What's our one another responsibility there? To admonish them. Here's the next one. Encourage the faint-hearted. Remember I told you that the word faint-hearted is the idea of being small-souled. Uh, we're, we're sort of shriveling up. Uh, we're discouraged. We're despondent. Well, you don't admonish that kind of person in the body of Christ. You rather encourage. You come alongside the faint-hearted, the small-souled. And then he says, thirdly, help the weak. Help the weak. There's somebody who's weak in faith. There's somebody who may even be physically weak. We are to help them. And then notice this fourth one, and these are general categories. Be patient with how many? Everyone. With them all. That's a kind of one another, isn't it? Be patient with one another. How many one another's? All of them. All of them. We are to be patient. That is to be an attribute that characterizes our lives. And as I was studying that this week and as I was thinking about that, I was convicted yet again because one of the things that I look back now on my early parenting of my children was a lack of patience. A lack of patience. I can remember thinking, why don't you just do the right thing? Isn't that so easy? I'm doing it and I'm in my 30s. Why can't you do it when you're two? Right? Or even 12. Or even 22. You say, ah, you're going too far now. It's the idea of patiently coming alongside those we love. And if it's true of our physical family, it ought also to be true of our spiritual family, right? We are to be patient. We're to be long-suffering. This, this has the idea of a long, staged period of time before I blow up, before I become angry. This is what that means. Look at Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22. You probably know this quite well. Galatians 5.22, this is various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And what is, in fact, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? Verse 22 of Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. Maybe, maybe endurance is a, is a good, healthy definition. Endurance. 2 Corinthians 6.6, 6. 2 Corinthians 6.6, 6, just uh, to the left of Galatians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, says this. This is, how, this is how Paul says, as a servant of God and his associates, this is how he commended himself and his, his brethren in every way. Do you see that in verse 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, but as servants or slaves of God... We commend ourselves in every way. What kind of way, Paul? By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, 
calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, etc. He says, we're commending ourselves to the brethren in all of these ways. Would to God that Bethany Church commend themselves in all of these ways to everyone who's watching. You think the gospel would take on more significance in people's lives if Bethany Church was commending ourselves in all of these ways, including patience? I would dare say so. You go to that church because they are great at patience with each other. You go to that church and you find out what's happening there. They they are so patient with one another. Look at Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. Here's a a kind of attribute list. Uh, We might say a set of Christian virtues that Paul gives. And he says in verse 12 of Colossians 3, Put on then, like you're putting on a a set of new clothing, put on then as God's, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and there's our word, and patience. He doesn't stop there. He gives others. We're to put that on like it's a a new set of duds. We're to put that on because we want to commend ourselves and our Christian virtues as people watch us in how we treat one another. I mean, this is a commending of the gospel to people. We're showing the outside world how the inside church world gets along because this is a commendation of the very gospel. If we do the same thing they do in the outside world, and if we look no different than they are in the outside world, what commends Christianity to them? I say nothing. Nothing particularly. And our preaching of the gospel has a very hollow ring to it, doesn't it? It's a, it's a kind of um, bait and switch, they might think. Well, I mean, you say it changes your life. You say you're different. You say you have patience. But I don't see a lot of patience. In fact, for so many churches, including this church in its past, there have been, instead of this, uh, this kind of elongated period of time with great patience, We see schism and factions and infighting and division and factionalism, a steady stream of of those who don't like what the others are doing and they don't appreciate this and they they don't commend this and and they don't want to do this and and, uh, the exaltation of all of their preferences are, are in that exalted position and if we don't do it the way that I'm most comfortable in doing it, then I don't want to be patient with those people because they're not doing it in the way that I think it ought to be done. Won't commend us to the Lord, won't commend us to the Lord's people, and it won't commend us to those outside the fellowship. We ought to be patient. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. And even if you're not looking 
up all of these passages. I sure hope you're writing them down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. You know, he's discipling him. He's teaching him. He's nurturing him. And he says this, You, however, implied, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. Now, boy, if you were Paul, and if you were discipling others, and if you were about to write something in the inscripturated Word of God, would you be bold enough, would you be honest enough, would you be transparent enough, and would you be truthful enough to say, Timothy, follow me, I'm patient. Wow! I don't know. I don't know. Could I, could I say, I want you to follow my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Oh, oh, and by the way, verse 11, my persecutions, my sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So here's what I commend to you. I commend to you all the positive attributes, including patience, and I commend to you that you would follow all of those things that are happening to me now, including my persecution. Timothy, it's all yours. Go for it. Boy. Paul must have been a model because the Holy Spirit allowed him to write this on the pages of Scripture, and so it must be true of his life, and so he must have commended himself to Timothy, and Timothy must have been then enjoined to follow this brother, his beloved apostle Paul, his discipler in the faith, and so Paul says, you got to be patient. you got to be patient. You know, when we were talking about joining Thousand Oaks Bible Church and Bethany Church on the Hill, and do you know that we talked about it for upwards of, of many, many months prior to the actual voting, right? And there was a search committee, and there was an elder leadership council, and there were ministry partners talking to fellow ministry partners when it became sort of a, a, a public discussion. And in all of that time, we were developing what we might call much patience. And now we're, as of last Sunday, eight months in. Eight months in. I've needed more patience. You've needed more patience from me. I've needed more patience from you. And we need it now all the more. More patience. You say, well, what does that mean? Long-suffering. I desire to suffer long with you. Do you desire to suffer long with me? I mean, there have been some people, very honestly, who have said, he's not my cup of tea. I don't like his preaching. Too challenging, too convicting, too loud, too long. Thank you for those of you who have remained who are incredibly patient with me. The Lord's working on me. I'm in process. I don't know that I could say right now, under the inscripturated word, not that that would happen, but please follow my conduct, my faith, my patience, but I'm getting there. Maybe my last duty on the earth would be to pen something like that, commend uh, myself to a few believers, follow my patience. Folks, we're in transition. Pray for us in terms of the music area. We're looking at brothers. 
We're, we're, we're looking, we're praying, we're asking the Lord to give us both God's man and patience at the same time. We've got a lot of things in transition. We're working our way through many ideas, many principles, the application of truth in this church. And we're trying to, with all of our hearts, be patient with one another. We've tried to be short in our meetings as elders. And it seems as though each time we have one, our best efforts fail at short meetings. Why? Because there's so much to talk about. There's so much to pray about. There's so much to think through. There's so much to do. There are so many landmines for which we as elders want to lead all of you through so that we don't blow the whole thing up. And for this, we need your prayerful patience. Would you pray for us? The next time you think about criticizing an elder or the elders in toto or a decision of the elders, pray instead. Express patience instead. Here's another one. 2 Timothy 4.2. Just one chapter over. 2 Timothy 4.2. I charge you in the presence of God. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. This is sort of uh, Paul's last will and testament. I charge you in the presence of God. And, and look at the ominous nature of this. And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing, and His kingdom. In other words, he keeps heaping the... Timothy, do you know who's watching? Do you know who's looking to see your preaching ministry? Well, the presence of God, the presence of Christ Jesus, the one who is to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come back. He's going to bring His kingdom. And He better find you if you're here when He comes doing what? Verse 2, preach the word. And not just that, be ready in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, when they want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. And so therefore, you must, Timothy, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Complete patience. It says in 2 Timothy 2.24, and the Lord's bondservant must be patient. If you ask me what's the number one attribute of a man of God who steps into a pulpit, yea, even the pulpit of Bethany Church on the hill, what's the greatest attribute, what's the most necessary trait that he must have as he works his way through the very revitalization of a local church, and I would tell you, top of the list, it's patience. It's patience. I want to do things quickly. I want to see turnaround fast. I want to see more people here. I want to see more people evangelizing. I want to see more people smile. I want to see more people being loving and gracious and kind. I want to see our mission to this world. I want us to see ourselves getting off the hill so that we can bring more people up on the hill so they can worship the Son of God, right? It takes patience. It takes patience to do that. I've asked other brothers from around the country, you revitalized this or that. Said, how long did it take you to do that? And you'll get a variety of answers, right? Different situations, different contexts. And some of them say, three years, five years, seven years. And I say, can I pick one? 
I'd rather go with the shorter time frame because it seems to make life easier. Or maybe it doesn't because maybe what God is doing in your pastor and others is that he's developing the perfect patience of Jesus Christ as the church is revitalized. Here's another. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, this is, a, this is an amazing portion of Scripture. And in chapter 6, verse 11, the Bible says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is Abraham. And he's waiting for God to come through. And Abraham's saying, Lord, you promised, you promised, you promised. And then you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and it says, and none of the people who are listed there received what was promised in this life. They did receive it on the very moment of their death. But they didn't receive it in this life. How do you think that comes across to the good U.S. of A? To our fast, quick, self-serving culture. My daughter works at Chick-fil-A. My son Jaden calls it Chick-a-Lay. My grandson. And this young man at just about three, shortly, he's impatient. I'm more impatient than he is. And my daughter says, Dad, you wouldn't believe the number of people that if they drive to that window and it is not handed to them in a nanosecond, how angry they are. It's amazing. And I find myself just passing the menu board. And I'm driving up to the said window. And I find myself wondering, are they going to have it right there? I'm going somewhere. Right? And you're saying to yourself, and then if it's not there, or if the order's been messed up, or if you have to, oh no, pull to the curb. (laughs) It's like a fate worse than death. Pull to the curb? Don't you folks already get that stuff ready for us? Ah, it was a special order. Well... Abraham and all of those saints, they worked and they trusted and they trusted in the promises of God and they were patient and they didn't receive it in this life. But they did in the one that is to come. And as their souls were ushered into the very presence of God Himself, those promises were immediately fulfilled. What a joy. It says... They were looking for a better country. They just didn't realize it was not on the horizon. It was on the heavenly horizon. And and this is the kind of patience that God is working and needing into our lives so that we would be more patient. Look at verse 15 of that same chapter, Hebrews chapter 6. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained 
the promise. You said, I thought he didn't get the promise. He didn't in this life, but he did in the next. It's as good as done. It's as good as a done deal. Because when God promises, he never lies. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. You know how that is. People are, are arguing with one another, and uh, one guy says, no, I swear, I swear, I promise, I promise that what I'm telling you is true. Uh, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a thousand needles in my eye, right? And you try to come up with every exalted thing you can possibly think of to let people know that your version of the story is the true one and they ought to be convinced of it. And I'm telling you, it's true, it's true, it's true. you got to believe me. My promise is better than anybody else's promise and it's going to come true and I promise you that. You know, that's actually the context of what's going on here. For people swear by something greater than themselves. If they just said something like this, I'm telling you, I promise you ought to believe me. You say, <laughs> Really? I mean, you, you're, just, you're just promising by yourself. You're just swearing by yourself. Uh, that's, that's not, that's not going to be an oath that's confirmed. He says, and in all their disputes, an oath, something that's greater than themselves, it's final for confirmation. It's final when you say, I tell you by heaven's own mouth, this shall happen. Hey, boy, that's an oath. I mean, that's a promise. You're going far beyond you and your own little puny life and your own little puny promises because you're just a man. If you're going to say, and God will do it, verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, in other words, I promise you it will happen and I promise you it will happen because I never lie and I'm going to follow through on what I promised. It is the very unchangeable character of my own purpose, my own character. He guaranteed it with an oath. What kind of oath? You remember back in Genesis when God said, Abram, his name was Abram at the time, here's what I want to do. I'm going to promise you, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And back then, they didn't necessarily have all the contract law. They didn't have attorneys who made sure that everybody uh, kept their part of the bargain. And so what they did in order to make sure that this contract between these two parties was solidified, they would take animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay the animals to their side and then they'd bring a burning incense in between and they would walk together as two men right through those cut animals and that they were going to cut a covenant, cut an oath. And do you remember that story in Genesis? Do you remember when... God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abram. And do you remember when he told Abram to cut the animals and Abram did that? And you remember when he laid them off to the side? And do you remember when it was supposed to be the time that God himself and Abram were going to walk through the cut covenant that they were going to agree with each other, make a covenant with one another? Where was Abram? God knocked him out. God gave him what we might call a divine anesthetic. Why? I mean, they were supposed to walk through together. Because Abram could never, because he's a human being and a sinner at that, he would never be able to fulfill his part of the bargain. Right? So God put him out. 
And it says, and God walked through those cut animals by himself. Now go back to Hebrews 6. So when God desired to show, verse 17, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Well, who are the two unchangeable things? If God walked through those cut animals all by himself, who were the two persons? God and himself. Because God can only rely ultimately on one person, and the one person is himself. He's perfect. He never lies. He always comes through on his promises. And when he makes a covenant with an individual, he can't trust the individual. Even if that individual has expressed faith in Yahweh, as Abram did, but he couldn't be ultimately trusted. If Abram says, I swear to you, God, that I will keep my end of the bargain no matter what. And oh, by the way, when this wicked pagan king comes to take Sarai, my wife, away, I'm going to lie about it. I'm going to say she's my sister. When the truth was, she's only his half-sister. So he half-lied. And a half lie is a full lie, right? Because he wasn't trusting God. Which means that if he'd walked through that covenant with God between those animals, then there'd only be one person who would have upheld his end of the bargain, and it would have been God the Father himself. Because Abram would have failed, and he would have failed numerous times, and he did So what God did was he knocked him out and he walked through those animals all by himself. And when he did so, he wanted to show the unchangeableness of his promise so that in that unchangeable promise, we might have the strongest hope known to the world, to the universe. And it is God and God alone who keeps his promises. Does that give anybody any encouragement? You know what we say about that? God can be trusted. And one of the attributes of this God is that He's so patient with us. Do you remember when He told Noah, you're going to go out and you're going to be a preacher of righteousness. And oh, by the way, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It was only because God wanted Noah to find favor in the eyes of the Lord. He gave him faith. He gave him the opportunity to preach. And when he preached, he preached for how long? 120 years. And while he was preparing the ark, it says that God, according to 2 Peter, was waiting via his patience so that all would come to repentance, and that none would perish. 120 years, the patience of God was waiting, waiting, waiting. And Noah was building, and building, and building. Don't tell me that when the whole world plunged in that massive Genesis flood, and only eight survived, that that was unfair. Don't tell me that. For 120 years, he preached Patience did Noah. 
And he preached it like this. You got to come. You got to repent. You got to come to God. You got to believe in God. And what were the people saying? Ah, tomorrow. Even in Peter's second verse, oh, where is the promise of his coming? He's always the same God he's always been like. Ah, tomorrow. Minana. Take a siesta. Come on. And by the way, if it doesn't happen tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day after that, and the next day after that, and it seems like it's never going to happen, is it real? Is he going to fulfill his promise? Is it true? Will he do what he says? And the very moment that the floods came, and there were eight persons in that ark, and every single individual perished on the face of the entire earth, the patience of God had run its course. Aren't you glad that there were eight people left so that you and I can be here today? Do you see the grand patience of God? This is the patience that we need. This is the patience we need with each other. Some have left. Some of you stay. Some new folks are coming. And what we all ought to exhibit for every one of those groups is the massively encouraging patience that God is working in and through us. Praise God. The patience of God is not like ours. And praise God, ours is slowly becoming like His. I'm not done. (laughs) Part two, next time. Let's pray together. Father, how could we ever exalt your name enough when we think about your patience? You tell us to be patient. We must be patient. It's the very attribute of yourself. It's perfect. It's flawless. The unchangeable character of your purpose. And that's what we ought to be striving to learn and to live throughout our own lives. And especially how we're to do it with and for and toward one another. Lord, I confess that I need more of your patience. Bring us, your people, more of your patience. And when we are impatient, allow us to confess the impatience of our lives. Don't let us trash the opportunity Show the world the great patience of our God. Father, as we meditate now on the receiving of the bread, let us confess to you how much more patience we need to acquire and to live out. In Jesus' name, amen.